When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Last month, we were joined in London by the athlete, entrepreneur and online sensation Marie Forleo, who revealed her lessons for creating unstoppable success in work and in life in a live conversation with Hannah McInnes. Just a warning, strong language is used throughout. If you'd prefer a beeped version of their conversation, you can find one on our YouTube channel. Is this thing on? Oh my goodness, hello! I know. Now I just have to. I have to ask. I know. I'm just taking over right now. <laughs> How many of y'all flew in from another country to be here? Make some noise! Yes. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness, this is so exciting. I flew in from another country too to be here. So I'm with y'all. I'm with y'all. Okay. Another question before we get started. How many of y'all have already read the book? Make some noise. Okay, okay, this is gonna be a fun one. You ready for this? How many of y'all don't know who the hell I am and someone dragged you to this event and be you're honest, like, what did I get myself honest. into? Make some noise! Yes! All right, good. That's what we wanted to establish. All yours, baby, all Over yours. Over to me. Thank you all very, very much for coming. I am delighted to see so many of you here. Well done for making it past the protests um, and for making, may I say, I think the best possible choice of what to do with your evening. Marie, as she says, has been on a whistle-stop rock and roll tour of the US, but this is the one chance to catch her in the UK. So well done for getting your hands on a golden ticket. And just for coming shows that you're ready to embrace her philosophy, everything is figureoutable, um, which is of course the title of the book and the inspiration for this evening. Um, but I'm sure you might be sitting there thinking, that sounds too good to be true, and thinking of a million reasons why it doesn't apply to you or your life. But luckily, we have Marie, who is the best guide, who's going to be able to tell us how it can apply to all of us here this evening. I'm delighted to welcome her on behalf of the How To Academy. It's very hard to introduce her. She is so many different things. She's an entrepreneur. She's the founder of the highly acclaimed business training school, B-School. She's the host of the award-winning show Marie TV, and the, we're gonna have a sh yes. We'll, we'll probably take about an hour of this, but you can cheer off all of them. The host of the award-winning downloaded 
10 Million Times Marie Forleo podcast, which I'm sure many of you have listened to. And of course, she is the creator of a socially conscious digital empire, which has inspired millions across the world, I'm sure, as you can see, many of you here this evening. It's no wonder she's being called by a certain Oprah Winfrey, a thought leader for the next generation. And she's now the author of an instant number one New York Times bestseller. We gotta celebrate, right, while we're still alive. Let's just embrace it. Thank you, Hannah. For those of you who haven't read it, you've got a treat in store. It's, it deserves all the praise. It's accessible and it's no nonsense. It's just a really relatable guide. It's full of expletives. Marie says, um, like sea salt crushed over a fresh caprese salad, you'll find swear words sprinkled throughout these pages. I write the way I speak, raw and from the heart. So I hope you're gonna do the same this evening. Is that okay with y'all? If we just keep it real? Awesome. Permission granted. I love it. Brilliant. Thank you very much for coming. You talk at the beginning of the book. Tell us the story of where this came from, the origin, origins of the phrase, everything is figure outable. Yes. So we're going to take it back to Jersey. Um, and right before we do, I just want to thank you guys so much from the bottom of my heart for coming out. I know how much it takes to get your butt in a seat, to get on that plane, to get on that train, to make it through traffic. And just from my heart to yours, I love you guys so, so much. So thank you for being here tonight. Um, where this wonderful phrase and idea came from. So, taking it back to Jersey and talking about my mama, Miriam. So for those of you who don't know, my mom is this super interesting character. She is about 5'3". She looks like June Cleaver. She has the tenacity of a bulldog and she curses like a truck driver. She's amazing. She actually grew up the daughter of two alcoholic parents and learned by necessity how to stretch a dollar bill around the block like five times. Uh, one of my fondest memories as a child was sitting around the kitchen table on Sundays with my mom, cutting out coupons from the Sunday paper because she loved teaching me all the ways that our family could save money. And she also taught me about the fact that brands would send you these cool free things if you saved up your proofs of purchase. Did you all have some of that in your world? Yes, exactly. Yeah, those moms and those dads. So one of my mom's most prized possessions was this tiny little transistor radio that she got from Tropicana Orange Juice for free. This little orange, it, it, the radio was shaped like an orange. It had a red and white straw sticking out of the side. That's the antenna. And she loved this thing. She took it everywhere. And as a kid, I knew the way to find her somewhere around the yard or somewhere around the house was listening for the tinny little sound of that radio. So one day I'm coming home from school and I'm walking down the street and I hear this music blaring off in the distance and I get close to the house and the music's coming from up above and I look up and my mom is perched precariously on top of the roof of our two-story house with her cute little Tropicana orange near her butt and I was like mom what are you doing up there are you okay and she's like Ree I'm fine don't worry about it the roof had a leak I called the roofer. He said it was going to be at least 500 bucks. I said, screw that. I'm doing it myself. <laughs> Another day, I come home from school, and I hear music blaring from the back of the house. So I walk through the house, and my mom's in the bathroom, and I push open that door. There's, like, dust particles in the air. There's pipes sticking out of the walls, and it looked like an explosion went off. And I was like, Mom, are you okay? What are you doing? She's like, oh, Rhea, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. The tiles had some cracks in them, and I didn't want the bathroom to get moldy, so I'm retiling the whole bathroom. Now, you got to get, my mom is high school educated, and this is the 80s. So this is a pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-Google world. I never knew where I was going to find my mom or what she was going to be doing, but I knew I could find her by the sound of that radio. So there was one day in the fall 
kind of around now time, I was coming home late from school and it was already dark out, so it was a little eerie. I approached the house and the house itself is completely dark and it's quiet. This is a very bad sign in an Italian-American home. Never good news. I walk in the house and I feel that pit in my stomach that something was wrong and I'm like, where's my mom? Where's the sound of that radio? And I start tiptoeing through the house afraid of what I might find and I heard some clicks and clacks coming from the kitchen. So I follow that sound and I see my mom hunched over the kitchen table, which looked like an operating room, and spread out in front of her, there was some electrical tape and screwdrivers and a completely dismantled Tropicana orange radio. I was like, mom, what happened? Are you okay? That's like your favorite thing. She's like, oh, Ree, no big deal. The antenna was a little off and the tuner was busted, so I'm fixing it. And I stood there for a minute watching her work her magic like I always did, and then I finally thought to ask the question that I should have always asked, which was this. Hey, mom, how do you know how to do so many different things that you've never done before, but nobody's showing you how to do it? And she put down her screwdriver and she cocked her head to the side. She's like, Ree, what are you talking about? It's just no big deal. Nothing in life is that complicated. If you roll up your sleeves, you get in there and you do it. Everything is figure outable. And I was like, oh. It was so powerful. Those three simple words just washed over me and it took root in my soul. And honestly, it's been the single most powerful driving force of my life. So when I was in high school, those three words helped me extricate myself from a toxic and physically abusive relationship. When I was in college, it helped me get these rare work-study positions so that I could actually help pay for my education. I'm the first in my family to go to college. After I graduated, it's helped me land every single job I've ever had, from being on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, to publishing with Condé Nast, to selling glow sticks at mega clubs in New York City, which was one of my favorite jobs ever, to eventually becoming one of the world's first elite Nike dance athletes, despite having no formal dance training. And then, of course, it's what helped me have the audacity and the belief in myself that I could start a business at 23 not knowing anything and having so much self-doubt and so much debt and then growing it into the business that we have today. So I am super clear in my bones that everything really is figure outable. And now that I've had a chance to share it with people and put it in a book, I want nothing more than everyone that I can reach to get this phrase, adopt it for themselves and awaken all of their innate wisdom and the power that's inside of them because we all have it. And I really think this phrase is at least one piece of what helps us unlock it. Why did you wait? You've obviously had this for a long time. Why did you wait until now to put it in a book? Why did you want to put it in that form? So honestly, I'm a really focused person. Like that's a hard thing for me because I have tons of ideas and my brain is always like squirrel, bunny, boo, 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 like that. But I've trained myself because I've caused myself so much pain trying to do all the things um, to really focus in on one thing or a few things at a time. And for the past decade or so, I've been having so much fun building the business and being with my B-schoolers and creating Marie TV and growing all of that. And there's a lot that happens behind the scenes. And I didn't, I just didn't quite honestly feel like it was the right time, but I knew it was coming. Um, and my, my agent was like, you know, there's publishers approaching and saying, we just want the Marie Forleo book, you know, here's a check, just get her to write something. And I was like, no, that's not how we work. And so I was thinking about it for a while, and then when um, the Oprah team had invited me onto Super Soul Sessions, and they said, you know, we'd love you to give a talk, what do you want the talk to be about? 
my heart just said, it has to be everything is figureoutable. And if I do this talk on Oprah's stage, I know that I'm going to know for myself whether or not this should be the book. Because it would have been easier, quite frankly, to write a business book a couple years ago, but it just didn't feel right. And I knew this one would be really hard for me to write. Sometimes simple ideas, has you, have you guys ever experienced that? Sometimes the simplest things are the hardest to communicate. Isn't it wild? And so I knew it was going to kick my ass. And I think it just had to be the right time when I was up for the challenge. Do you think it wasn't just you? It was also the way society is. And you talk a lot about technology, digital. Do you think that it was a reaction to that as well that you were? I think it's a combination. You know, um, so one of the things when I was working on the book in New York City, by the way, working on means struggling to write the book, right? Like crying in the corner, thinking that the book totally sucked, that I should have never said yes to it. I should give the money back to the publisher. That was the experience of writing the book. I was in a restaurant. Oh, that goes against everything. <laughs> well, no, but we can talk about that too. It's just, you know, anything that you want to figure out that's important to you, the journey is not going to be easy. Yeah. You're going to get your ass kicked right? But it's going to be worth it. That's the important thing. So I'm sitting in this restaurant working on the manuscript and I run into my friend Toby and he asked me what I'm working on. And I said, I'm working on this book. And he's like, why are you doing this? Your business is going great. The show's growing. This is a huge project. Why did you take this on? And I said, Toby, here's the truth. If I walked out of this restaurant today and got hit by a bus, this is the one idea that I would want to leave behind. This is the idea that if I can articulate it the best that I possibly can and get it into as many hands as possible, I feel like this could change more lives than everything I've done in my career so far. So that's why I wanted to write the book. Now, in terms of what's happening in society, so it's estimated that 300 million of us worldwide suffer from depression. In the United States, suicide rates are at a 30-year high. That's not even speaking into the economic, political, environmental, social unrest that's happening all around the world. So for me, it's clear that a lot of us are in pain. And I really believe in my heart that this idea and this philosophy can be a part of the solution. Because when people understand how much power they really have and that they are on this planet to use their gifts to not only make their lives great, but to make a difference to others, I think that we've got a fighting chance to solving some of our biggest issues. It feels like there's a frustration that comes through the book that it's not taught, that we have to wait to read everything is figureoutable. We don't learn this in school. It's not told us by teachers or in practical sessions. Does that? Yeah, it's honestly the reason why I do what I do. So in my early 20s, I just was hitting so many walls and feeling so frustrated that I couldn't find my place in the world. And, you know, I just kept failing between Wall Street and trying to be on um, work in publishing. And it's just nothing was satisfying. And it didn't make sense to me. I'm like, gosh, I'm a really hard worker. And I really want to contribute somewhere. But everything I was kind of taught about, go to college and get a job, and it just wasn't working for me. And I, quite frankly, felt frustrated and like a loser. And when I started just exploring the world of personal development, development and understanding things like meditation and the fact that you can change your thoughts and that actually changes your behavior and then you change your results. I'm like, why didn't anyone really teach me this earlier? And then I discovered the world of coaching and I'm like, this is 
awesome. And being who I am from New Jersey, like if I find out about the best pizza, I'm going to talk about it. If I found out about really good ideas, I want to talk about it. So I'm like, I want this to be my life, sharing ideas and concepts that actually work, that help people create real change in their lives. So yeah, you know, I remember when I first started coaching, I actually was thinking, I was like, I wish I could create like a life school and gather some of the world's smartest people who have knowledge and understanding that we all should really be given earlier in life, but take people through it as adults. So that's kind of why I do what I do in a big sense. I think that we have an opportunity to kind of teach ourselves what we never learned before. And it's not so much as individuals. You seem to feel like you want to change the world ultimately. Is that your, your aim is that if we all change ourselves, ultimately we will do a change the world. Yeah, so when we think about our bigger societal problems, you know, it can sometimes feel overwhelming and like we won't make a difference or we have no impact out there. But I think when you think about all the things that are going wrong, you also have to take a step back and go, okay, in order for any significant change in the world to happen, first we must believe that we can actually make an impact. And we ultimately have to believe that we ourselves can change. And that's what this belief is about. Because I think when you start to see progress in your own life, and that you start to see that you can make a difference in the quality of your own life, you naturally want to share that, don't you? Anytime something good happens, you don't want to keep it to yourself. You don't want to be selfish about it and just focus in. You want to share. So I think that there's just this natural progression that happens. So for me, I don't get caught up thinking like, or think I'm that powerful that, oh, I can change the whole world. I think that if I focus on helping people with my gifts, that that will have a ripple effect. And are you writing for only big dreamers, or is this for everyone? Who do you have in mind when you're telling every, everyone? Oh, everyone. So here's the thing. I don't think bigger dreams are necessarily better dreams. I was having this conversation this morning. Um, uh, someone who works at a magazine was asking me, like, well, what if someone, the thing that they want to figure out is inner peace? Is this book for them? I'm like, absolutely. A hundred percent. We've had a whole 15 minutes, but you haven't sworn. That, that's all it takes. But seriously, though, if your dream is wanting to figure out how to create the most gorgeous, beautiful garden in your neighborhood, I'm going to dance and cheer for you. If your dream is wanting to start a bajillion dollar company, I'm going to dance and cheer for you. If your dream is around having the most beautiful family and really rich relationships, I'm going to dance and cheer for you. So your dreams are there for a reason. It's like each of us has this inner compass, this guidance system. And here's one of the things that I've discovered. You wouldn't have the dream in your heart if you already didn't have what it takes to make it real. That's the truth. That's how this whole thing works. So when there's something in your heart that keeps coming up for you, something that you really wanna see happen, whether again, it's personal or it may be connected to others, that's there because it's your internal guidance system nudging you towards the change that you're here to make. And when any of us hold back from that and play small, first of all, we're miserable. Second of all, we're wasting the gifts that we're on this planet to give. So I wanna come on to the, the power of belief. I've never seen so much nodding from an audience, every, everything you say. Um, you know, there is the sense that people feel their circumstances will not enable them to, have, to be able to figure out their problems. Sure. And you talk about that a lot. It comes through a lot in the book. One of the things you say is, don't offend yourselves. 
Tell us a bit what you mean by that. Well, that's one of my real fun ways to just talk about the, the topic of my salty language. Because um, offending yourself, I believe, really is a choice, right? Because it's just words. Those are just words, especially the way that I use them. They're never intended to you know, cause anyone harm. Um, but what I'd love to talk about now is, uh, is actually this. Can I see a show of hands, if this is OK with you, of anyone who doesn't believe that everything is figureoutable. If you're a little skeptical about this notion that everything is figureoutable, raise your hand so I can see you. Okay, great, one couple honest people, raise it. It's all good, 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 awesome. Yay, I love you, fantastic, thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so can we talk about that? Let's talk about it. So when I was working on the book in the early stages, I went out to brunch with a few friends and one of my friends brought her 10-year-old son. And they said, Marie, what are you working on? I said, a new book. What's it called? Everything is figureoutable. And the 10-year-old says, no, it's not. <laughs> nope. Everything is not figureoutable. And I said, well, this is good, because I'm going to have to contend with this out in the larger world. And I said, tell me more. Tell me something that's not figureoutable, young man. And he said, well, we human beings can't grow working wings out of our back and fly away. And I said, well, that may be true in this moment, but you do know we human beings can indeed fly. And he was like, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, what about this one? I can't bring my dog back from the dead. And I was like, well, that's some pet cemetery shit right there. <laughs> but scientists are working on cryogenics, and some people have been cloning their dogs. And he's like, oh, yeah. I guess you're right. So conversations with 10-year-olds and other people inspired me to create a set of rules. The rules of the figureoutable philosophy. This is a mental container that really helps us use this phrase and this philosophy for its intended purpose, which is to help us create positive change in our lives and then by proxy in the world around us. So you guys ready for the three rules of the figureoutable philosophy? All right. Rule number one, all problems or dreams are figureoutable. Rule number two, if a problem isn't figureoutable, it's not a problem, it's a fact of life or a law of nature or something like gravity or death. Does that make sense? Rule number three, you may not care enough to solve this particular problem or reach this particular dream and that's okay. Find something that you do care deeply about and go back to rule number one. Now, that should handle at least some of the skepticism in the room, right? Because it gives you a way to think through this. And you know, when I was researching the book, I love inspirational quotes. Do y'all, like if you get a really good quote, there's like 70 of them in this book. But I found one by a British quantum theorist named David Deutsch. He wrote a book called The Beginning of Infinity, which is a mind bender, it's awesome. But he says this, Everything that is not forbidden by the laws of nature is achievable given the right knowledge. Now, you don't have to take a quantum theorist word for it or my word for that example, for, for that instance. I would invite you to test this idea, to try it before you deny it. So that's level one of skepticism. You guys ready to go to level two? Yes. Okay, so level two of skepticism. A dear friend of mine who is a fan of my work, he's known me for a long time, he confessed to me. He said, Marie, I'm so proud of you. Congratulations on your book, but I got to be honest. When I first heard that title, I was like, come on, girl. Everything is not figureoutable. What about the really tough stuff in life? What about addiction? What about grief? What about trauma? 
What about a life-altering or a life-ending diagnosis? Are you really saying that that is figureoutable? Yes, I am. And here's why I stand behind that statement. So after we did the Super Soul Sessions talk with Oprah, this idea started getting out into the world in a bigger way. And I started receiving letters from people who had heard that idea and used it in their own lives. So there was one particular letter that struck me, and it was from a woman named Jen. Jen wrote to me and said, Marie, loved your Oprah talk. It's actually an idea that my mom has been trying to teach me, and we loved it so much. We sat down, we watched it together. It was awesome. But then everything changed. My beautiful mom who's like my best friend in the whole world, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and suddenly nothing seemed figureoutable. But then Jen said she took a step back and looked more deeply at the situation, and here's what she discovered. She could figure out how to get nursing care for her mom who lived in a rural area. She could figure out how to find foods that her mom could actually tolerate, and this was the big one she could figure out how to get medical equipment so that her beautiful mom could spend her last days and in fact, her last five weeks on earth exactly where she wanted to be, which was in her own home. So Jen said, I can say without a doubt that everything really is figureoutable and thank you so much for sharing those three simple words that made a huge difference to two women on the other side of the world. They're from New Zealand. And so in the book, there are dozens of other stories of people who have battled addiction and grief and trauma, some of the most horrific and challenging experiences that we human beings have, and they found a way to use this phrase to lift themselves up, to find deeper strength and resilience and a sense of hope when they needed it most. So when you say, um, even if this entire book is bullshit, <laughs> is what you write. Um, can you think of more empowering and pragmatic philosophy to embrace? The idea is you must just be open to it. And is that right? I mean, what's the alternative? That everything's not figureoutable? That's fucking depressing. <laughs> right? Like, is that really how you want to live your life? That it's like all done? No, I'm being serious. That's an awful way to live. And so to embrace this notion that everything is figureoutable in my own experience and in my experience sharing this with other people, it awakens something in you that is so alive and so creative and so resilient. And again, adopting this philosophy does not mean that the road ahead is easy. It's not going to be all daisies and unicorns and doing cartwheels down the street and woo, everything's okay. You're going to cry. You're going to have stress. You're going to question whether or not you can figure things out. But when you keep reaching and reaching for this three-word phrase and saying it to yourself over and over and then acting on it, you will surprise the shit out of yourself with how powerful you are. Are you open for that? Yes. Good. One of your chapters is about belief, and we've talked a little bit about it, and we can't cover everything this evening. Everyone, I hope, has the book in their hands. Or they're going to get it. Or they're going to get it. But one of the really important things, I think, is this idea of role models. Um, a way to transcend limiting beliefs is having a role model. Where do you suggest people look for a role model? And, and also, perhaps you could tell us who yours were. So 
my parents were my role models um, because they're incredibly hardworking and I just love them so much and I'm so grateful that I still have them in my life. Um, in terms of role models, I think what's really interesting, I think we can find them anywhere. What's so cool about being alive on the planet right now is that with our little mobile phones, we have access to the world in terms of so many stories, so many books, so many pieces of media where you can learn about historical figures, people from the arts and from entertainment, politics if that lights you up, the world of medicine or sports. Like You can go searching for people that have achieved something that you admire. It can be someone from the past. It can be someone currently. I think it's about tapping into your own desires and asking yourself, what do you really want to create or experience or achieve? And then looking out and seeing, has anyone else done anything like this? Or if there are just people that exist that you're aware of that you admire. So for example, um, do you guys know the artist Lizzo? Isn't she amazing? Like, I love Lizzo, and I don't know that much about her, but I get inspired just seeing her perform, just listening to her music. So I think that we can find role models and inspiration everywhere, and it's not like there needs to be one perfect role model or one person, but ask yourself, are there people around you who you admire, whether you know them personally or not? And what are those qualities? And I think if you start peeling that back and understanding what you admire about them, what you usually find is that something that you perhaps have latent in yourself. And that's a quality that you want to develop a little further. Does that answer that? Very much. We're all very good, though, at finding excuses. We're all so good at finding excuses oh. not to do things. Let's um, talk about that. And you talk a lot about that. And the, the words won't and can't. Yes. Okay, so... If y'all are open to embracing the figureoutable philosophy and saying, yes, I believe that I could figure anything out that is truly important to me, if you're in on that, then the next thing that we must ask ourselves is this, well, what's stopping us? What's stopping us? And so this is a room full of brilliant, smart, ambitious people. We could come up with a laundry list of things that could be stopping us. But what I've seen in my 20-year career is this. One of the most common things that stops us all are our excuses, those nasty little lies that we tell ourselves from time to time about how we can't because we don't have the money, how we can't because we don't have the time, or how we can't because we don't have the know-how or the experience or we don't understand how to get started. Okay, honesty time. Y'all ready? How many of you ever from time to time make excuses? Yes, all of us do. I do, you do, everyone you know does. So this is nothing to feel bad about. It's nothing to feel shameful about. And this isn't about beating ourselves up. But when you embrace the figureoutable philosophy and you're like, I'm ready to go, then you also have to contend with what gets in your way. And most typically, it is our excuses. So let's talk through how we unwire them. Cool? One of the best ways I've found is to actually look at our language and to understand the distinction between two tiny words that can change everything. Those two words are can't versus won't. So here's the deal. 99.9% .9 of the time, not 100, 99.9% .9 of the time, when we human beings say that we can't do something, can't is really a euphemism for won't. And what does won't mean? Won't means we don't really want to. We don't want it bad enough. We don't want to put in the work. 
We don't want to make the sacrifice. We don't want to get uncomfortable. We don't want to take the risk. We don't want to shift around our other priorities. So has anyone ever said anything like this to yourself? You know, I really want to get strong again. I want to get back in my body. I should really get back to the gym. But I can't because I don't have the time. I'm too busy with work and the kids. Anyone? Yes. How about this one? You know, I would really love to take that design class. I think it could open up a whole new career, but I can't. I can't afford it. It's way too expensive. Yep. How about this one? I would really love to start that nonprofit. I have such a great idea for a business, but I can't get started. I don't know how. Okay, can we all be honest? That's some bullshit. <laughs> that is some bullshit. Here's how we know. Let me ask you this question. Has there ever been a time in your life when initially you said to yourself, I can't because I don't have the time to do that, or I can't because I don't have the money, or I don't have the know-how, or whatever, and then something came along that was so important to you, and it was so compelling that you busted right through those excuses and you made something happen despite not believing that you could initially. Has anyone ever done that? This is like at least 60 to 70% of the room, and Dalios who didn't raise your hands, you're just being tightwads right now. Because I know y'all did it. I know you did it. You just didn't want to give it to me. So, <laughs> virtually every person I've ever asked in the world usually has a story like that where you blew your own mind and you completely moved past your excuses because it was important enough. So that tells you that it's possible. Here's why the distinction between those two words is so important. When we human beings say we can't, we usually feel like we're in a powerless position and we start to feel helpless as though we have no control over how we're spending our time, our money, or our energy, right? But when you use the word won't or you're just saying something more simply like, I don't want to, that's not my priority right now. I don't want to work that hard. You are using a word that is empowered because you're telling yourself the truth. You have agency. You're in charge of your choices in terms of how you spend your time, your energy, and your money. I'll give you an example from my own life. So one of my long-term goals is to be able to speak fluent Italian. I know that, God willing, if I'm on the planet long enough, there will come a day where I will speak it fluently. Every time I go now, I speak like one or two words. You give me a glass of Cabernet, and I speak like 25 more words, right? <laughs> None of them very good. But even throughout the book writing process, here's how I know I don't really want to speak Italian right now. Because after getting done with writing the book and promoting the book, and let's say it's about eight or nine o'clock at night, and I've got a few other hours left in my day before I go to sleep, I am not pulling out my phone and learning Italian phrases. You know what I'm doing sometimes? Watching fucking Netflix. <laughs> That's how I know that I don't want it bad enough. Does that make sense? So anytime when you leave this room, you catch yourself saying to yourself or saying to other people, oh, I can't do that because I don't have the time. Stop, check yourself before you wreck yourself, and try on the word won't. See if that feels more true. Or just say, I don't want to. That's not my priority. I would rather do something else. And here's why this is so important. Because we lie to ourselves so often in these little ways, and I don't know anyone who can figure things out or make big change in their lives or in the world feeling like a victim or feeling powerless or helpless against your circumstances. Do you? No. Now, on the flip side, when you own your choices and you're like, I just don't want to do that. That's not my priority right now. All of a sudden, you have so much more energy to focus on the things that you really do care about and the things that you do want to make a change in. 
And when you have that energy and you find the things you really do want to do, you still sort of think you don't have the time. And one of the things that you show us is that we can actually free up an extraordinary amount of time in our day, which I found really illuminating reading the book. Two hours, you think we can free up all of yeah, us. Yeah, so did you, just... I'm curious, when you read it, you were telling me backstage that some of the, you were like, yes, yes, yes. And then certain part of the books are like, oh shit. Well, I turned off my phone to carry on reading and then I just, you know, read far more chapters than I would have been sitting there beeping away. But you seem to suggest that, well, obviously technology is a huge drain on our time. What are those techniques that you recommend to get those two hours back into our day? Because it can change so much. When you add it up, don't ask me to do the maths, you did, yeah, to how much more book. time you have a year. That's right. So um, one of the challenges in the excuses chapter, which is one of my favorite chapters in the book, is to challenge yourself to find two free hours a day. Now, before you're like, whatever, girl, there's no way I can't find two free minutes a day. Just humor me for a moment and play because there's all these different ideas to experiment with. And one of the best ways to help yourself reclaim time is to actually understand where your time is going in the first place. So I recommend this, a little seven-day exercise of time tracking. So, tracking your time from the moment that you wake up in the morning until the moment you go to sleep. Now, here's the deal. You're going to write down, you know, whether it's in two, five, ten-minute increments, whatever you're doing, but you need to do it like a neutral observer. A lot of times when people start doing a time log, they fudge and they want themselves to appear better on paper. You're like, I'm not going to pick up my phone this morning. I am going to meditate first thing. That's some bullshit, right? <laughs> You know you pick up your phone every morning, so just write it down and track how much time you actually waste scrolling through those social feeds and feeling like shit afterwards. Track it. <laughs> if you do that, it's too honest, right? Just too honest, is that what it is? Um, if you track it for seven days, I promise you, you will see little pockets where you're like, this activity or this thing that I'm doing, perhaps even unconsciously, isn't aligned with my highest values or the things that I say I wanna do. And I think for all of us, you know, in the States they say, there's a few studies that point to, we Americans are spending up to five hours a day on our phones, up to five hours a day. And even if people don't carry around their phones, there's other studies that say, again, in America, we're watching like five hours of television a day. And honestly, I don't think that that's far off, do you? No, and you have the app now to confirm that that probably that's is what's right. going on. That's right. I mean, this was before Apple iOS gave us screen time as a little feature. There was a great app called Moment, and it was free, and it would allow you to just really track how much time you are on your phone each day down to looking at which apps, how much time you're spending in these things. And I will tell you, I thought I was pretty good. I was horrified horrified when I saw that. But here's the point. Tracking your time for seven days is a really great exercise because then you will get to see where your time is going so then you can make some choices. The difficulty is, as you say again in the book, it's not easy. Some of these things are ingrained. But I, I love the fact you said that you know it's not easy to change your ingrained habits. To free up your time, you need to say no, disappoint people, disrupt social norms, ruffle feathers, have uncomfortable conversations and dismantle a few long-held assumptions. Saying no can be a very powerful thing. Yes. So one of my favorite things is to teach people to get on what I call the no train. 
My B-schoolers know about this. So here's what the no tray in. So is anyone in here, are you guys addicted to saying yes and then regretting your choices? Like, why the hell did I say yes to that? And you say yes, yes, okay, good. You say yes so often, you're like, oh my God, I don't have any more time for me, and why did I put this thing in my calendar? And before you know it, your life doesn't feel like your own. Experiment with what I call the no train. So here's what happens on the no train. When you have a first class ticket on the no train, no matter what people ask of you, your first response is no. No, I'm not going to do that. No, I'm not available. No, thank you. No, 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 no. You just stay on the no train. It is amazingly uncomfortable for many of us, but it's awesome because it frees up your calendar. And then you start to have choice about what you'd actually like to say yes to. Again, some people in this audience might be like, I'm great at saying no, but most of us are not. So um, is it uncomfortable? Yes. But the upside of training yourself to say no as a first response is you start to build in some buffer where then you can consider if you actually want to do this thing. And here's a great trick that I picked up. If someone asks you to do something and you want to say, oh, you know, maybe I'll do that in October. You know, they invite you to something and it's months and months away. If you wouldn't say yes to doing it tomorrow, don't say yes at all. Really, because October's going to come up and you're going to be like, shit, why the hell did I put that in my calendar? God damn it. So we're kind of going through all the things that might hold us back, and you're going to bat them out one after the other. And one, of course, is fear. And you talk a lot about fear in the book. And you seem to try and change the way that people look at fear. So you need to analyze your fear. Tell us a little bit about how you can overcome what we think of as fear that's stopping us and holding us back. Yeah, fear is such an interesting thing. You know, it's this wonderful force of nature that, first of all, has kept us alive. So that's beautiful. We want to thank our fear. And I think fear is always helpful if it's properly understood. So let's talk about fear from this perspective. If you're gonna go out into traffic and stand in front of a moving bus, right, you'd feel afraid and fear would keep you on the sidewalk. That's awesome. But when you're thinking about making a big change in your life, increasing your rates, saying something in your relationship that you know you need to handle, moving to a new country, whatever it is, you will also feel some sensations that you probably identify as fear. But what if Fear, outside of when it's keeping you alive in terms of standing in front of a moving bus, what if your fear was directive? What if it is helpful? What if your fear is actually a GPS for where your soul most wants to go and you've just been misinterpreting the signal? So think about it this way. Infants, when they're born, right, they cry. They don't have language skills yet. So if they've got a poopy diaper, they're crying. If they're happy, they're crying. If they want to eat, they're crying. You have to decipher that code. Am I right? Same thing with dogs. I have Kuma. I love my dog so much. He barks his head off if the UPS guy is at the door and he's trying to protect me. But you know what? He also barks his head off if he's having fun and he wants to play ball or there's something else going on. So it's up to me to interpret that signal. So what if when you're facing a really exciting opportunity or something that quote unquote scares you, what if that's your fear going like this? Hey! It's me. I'm trying to tell you this thing is important. Do the thing for heaven's sake. What if that's what your fear was actually saying? And you misinterpreted it. You thought she was saying, danger, stop, no. But instead she was saying, go. So 
that's kind of the framework through which I think we should initially think about our fear, that she's actually your friend and she's there to help you. Then when we take it more concrete, there's a section in the book about fear taming. And this is one of the most useful exercises because one of the reasons that we often get stuck around fear is because it remains amorphous in our minds. It's this big monster in the back and we never actually face it or look at it or articulate it on paper. So one of the most useful things you can do if you're feeling a lot of fear and you think it might be good and directive is to actually start writing down what's the worst case scenario if you went ahead with this and you totally fall on your face. What could happen? So as an example, when I was thinking about starting my business and I was terrified and I was in debt and I had no money and I had no clue how I was gonna do this, I thought about, okay, what's the worst thing that happens if I start this life coaching business and it doesn't work out? So I imagined, okay, I'd spend years trying to do this thing, I'd make no money, I would feel embarrassed, my parents would be ashamed of me. Okay, that's pretty bad. Well, what's the worst thing that could happen if that happens? Well. I wouldn't have enough money to pay my bills, and I'd get kicked out of my apartment. Okay, well maybe I can move from my parents. What's the worst thing that would happen if that happens? Well, if they didn't take me back into the house, what would happen then? Well, maybe I'd be homeless. Maybe I'd have no one to live with. What's the worst thing that could happen there? And I got to the bottom of my fears on paper, and it turns out, basically, that I would be homeless and alone and unloved. That's the worst thing that could, I could happen if I tried to start this business and it failed. So then I asked myself, okay, what would I do if that actually happened? Like, how would I lift myself back up? And here's what I came up with. I'd probably go to a shelter. I would find a shelter to go to. And then what would I do? I said, I would get any job anywhere, McDonald's, Starbucks, I don't care. I would find some job to start getting myself back on my feet. So when I looked my worst fears in the face on paper, they really weren't that horrible. Does that make sense? It was like, okay, first of all, I don't think I would let it get to that point. And if it did get to that point, here's my exact plan to lift myself back up. But then here's the magic. You need to do the flip side. What's the best case scenario from following your fear? What are all the things that you could learn? All the things you could discover? Who might you become? How might your life change if you followed this fear and it actually turned out to be awesome. What's the best case scenario? So for me, I made a list. Again, you've got to write it down. And my list sounded like, well, I'd actually feel fulfilled for once in my life. From a financial upside position, I was thinking, whoa, well, if I'm really good at what I do, I could actually maybe have financial freedom. That sounded outrageously awesome to me. I thought about the people that I could work with and the lives that I could change. I thought about having location freedom. Freedom is one of my biggest values in life. And so I went down the best case scenario list and I was like, man, this is awesome and totally worth it. And the worst case scenario list, that was some bullshit I could totally handle. Does that make sense? So. Here's what's awesome about doing the fear taming exercise, which there's a few more steps to it in the book that you can walk yourself through, is that you have it on paper. And when you articulate your fears and you write them down and you look at them and you make a plan for how you would actually solve for that circumstance if it did occur, it's much less likely to occur because you're mitigating against it. And then if you look at the worst case scenario and you're like, I'm not willing to take that risk, dial it back up. Well, what's the risk you are willing to take? And if you go there, you're good. 
there's a wonderful example you use Bruce Springsteen and the way that he attributes what we think of fear, racing heart or panic, yes. excitement. That's looking at fear from a physical standpoint. So what the coolest thing is, I think, about the fear chapter is we look at it from every level. We're going cognitive, we're going somatic, we're going emotional, we're going metaphorical, if you will. So we look at fear from every different angle so that you have all the tools you need to not punch it in the face or get over it, but really to move through it in a really healthy way. And one of the notions actually that Josh, my man, has shared with me that's really made a difference in my life is this idea that he learned from his dad. So his dad was a theoretical physicist who worked with Einstein. And Josh's dad taught him this lesson. You know, what if all emotions are just atoms vibrating at different frequencies? That's all it is. And the thing that we've been taught to label as fear, what if it's something else? What if it's like champagne bubbles? What if we've just been taught to label it something that all of a sudden we have this terror over? And then we'll get to the Bruce Springsteen story. So Josh has this great technique that he teaches in his course called Committed Impulse. He's like, whenever you feel fear or anxiety or a little bit of panic, especially when going on stage, don't call it fear or anxiety or panic. Call it some weird ass name like Noonie or something ridiculous like sushi. Right? So for example, if you're thinking about pitching an editor or you're going to go in front and speak in front of 1,800 people, for example, rather than saying, oh my God, I'm so scared, Hannah. I'm like, oh my God, Hannah, I got so much noonie inside. It sounds ridiculous because it is, but you break yourself out of the trance of terror. And thinking about Bruce Springsteen, there's a great legend that the boss, when he's backstage about to perform for tens of thousands of humans, he has sweaty palms and his stomach is swirling around and his legs are getting a little wobbly. And even in his head, he's thinking like, oh my goodness, I'm feeling a little just lightheaded up here and everything is starting to sweat. And you know what that means? It means I'm ready to rock. He has all of the same sensations that we all have, yet he has completely put them into a framework and into a personal narrative that this means he's getting ready to give the performance of his life. And I say, if it's good enough for the boss, it's good enough for us. What do you say? This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years, including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. In fact, you quote Elizabeth Gilbert in your book, and she oh, was friend, here with us in the same hall. I don't know if any of you were here not so long ago. Yeah, She's such a magical human being, isn't she? Oh, my goodness, I love Liz. And one of the things that we talked about and that you talk about and quote her on is this idea of perfectionism, really holding people back. How, why is perfectionism such a bad thing? 
Well, let's take a temperature. How many of y'all struggle with perfectionism and wanting to get things just right? Yeah, this is my people. You're my crowd. So uh, I love doing stuff like that too, because isn't it true that sometimes you're just in your own home or sitting at your own desk and you think you're the one that's so fucked up and everyone else has it all together, <laughs> right? And then you come into a place like this and you see, yeah, we're all screwed up. It's awesome. It's kind of fun. This is cool. We can talk about it. Um, so perfectionism, it's really painful. First of all, it keeps you from producing and sharing your gifts. That's one thing. So it just takes your productivity down into the toilet. That's number one. But in the extreme, it can actually be quite deadly. So when I was doing a lot of research for this particular chapter, I couldn't believe what I was discovering. And there's a lot of science behind this notion that perfectionism is tied to some severe mental health issues, eating disorders, and then in the extreme case, even suicide. So there was a research study that was done um, on folks that had taken their own life and they had interviewed the friends and family. And in over half, 50% of the times when they interviewed these folks, they declared that the person that's no longer with us was a perfectionist. That's how bad it can get. So perfectionism isn't just a destructive way of thinking about your work. It's a destructive way of thinking about yourself because it's rooted in this false notion that you're not good enough. That you're not good enough, that you don't have what it takes, that whatever you're producing or whatever you're sharing or whatever you want to put out in the world, somehow it's inadequate. And one of the most universal fears that all of us have is that we're afraid that we're not good enough. And here's what's interesting about that fear. I don't think it ever goes away. I don't think it ever goes away. You know, Again, doing what I'm doing now for 20 years and then working on this book, do you guys know how many times when I was writing this book, I could hear that voice that this sucks, that this isn't good enough? All these people out there in the world, they know this shit already. Why do they have to buy your book? I am hearing that in my head. So that's not necessarily, I hope you're like, God, this is really shitty news. If she can't get it together, what's my hope, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. I think that this voice stays with us. And the joy comes when you don't take it seriously, when you think about it as the universal mind and that you don't have to give it authority, you don't have to let it rule you, and you just go, oh, you know, my friend Hannah, she probably thinks she sucks too. That's fine. I'm just going to keep going. Does that make sense? So one of the ways that I've gotten out of perfectionist tendencies, and by the way, here's what's cool. Because um, some people might be thinking, girl, your stuff is tight, like your branding's together. Are you sure you're not still a perfectionist? For me, here's what it is. You can have extremely high standards for yourself and not fall into the downsides of perfectionism. So high standards can be healthy. Perfectionism blows. We don't want to go there. And here's what helps us stay out of it. A little mantra called progress, not perfection. So instead of trying to get things perfect, which is really unachievable, all our metric is, is progress. Have we learned something? Have we pushed this project ahead even a little bit? And I'll tell you this, even when you fall on your face, even when you scrape your knees, even when you have a quote unquote temporary failure, that's still progress. We have this mistaken notion in life that progress is like, okay, we have a goal and we start here and we're going to make progress and it's gonna be really neat and really fun, and then eventually, ding, 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 we're gonna reach our goal, like it's a straight line. Again, that's some bullshit. That is not how progress works. Here's how progress works. You have a goal, and you have an idea, and then you take a step, and then all of a sudden, you take a step back, 
and then you go around in a circle two times. <laughs> and then you shoot up. And then you go down. And then you inch two steps ahead, and then you go back, and you do this whole squiggly line thing, and then eventually, maybe, you meet your goal, or you find a whole new goal that was awesome that you couldn't even predicted in the first place. So that's what progress actually looks like. And when we strive for progress, not perfection, all of a sudden you produce a lot more work. It becomes a lot more fun. And especially in the world that we're in today, you can iterate. Nothing is really out there necessarily permanently. Even books, even this book. Hopefully it'll be around long enough where in 10 years we'll do an updated edition because I'm going to learn some new shit about figuring stuff out and I'm going to tell you all about it. Does that make sense? So taking ourselves less seriously, focusing on progress, not perfection, that's one of the ways that we can dismantle it. And being patient seems to be incredibly important. Like we oh, live in gosh. society where we think we need instant things to happen instantly, instant gratification. But you say that patience is one of the most critical mental strengths of the figure outable philosophy. Absolutely. You know, figuring things out typically, especially if it's something super important to you, if it's something super challenging, if it has to do with relationships or something that you've battled with for most of your life, it's probably not going to transform overnight. It just isn't. But that's okay. How many people in here have worked really hard on something and you've figured it out? Again, in any domain that you figured something out in your life that was super important to you. Let me see a show of hands. Okay, great. That's a lot of people in the room. Again, people that aren't raising your hands, you guys got to get your energy up because you're lying. Because I know you figured some shit out or else you wouldn't be here. Let me ask you this. Did it happen fast? Yes or no? No. Louder? Was it worth it, yes or no? Yes. Exactly. Anything worthwhile in your life that you treasure and value, it's hard as shit. So we have to embrace that. We have to be willing to say, you know what? This is not going to be easy. There's probably going to be some tears. There's probably going to be some fears. There's probably going to be some self-doubt, and that's okay. I'm going to stay on that figureoutable path, and I'm going to figure it out day after day after day for as long as it takes. This is why, actually, chapter five in the book, I think it's chapter five, might be chapter six, define your dream is the name of it. When you're choosing one thing to figure out, you have to make sure that this thing is supremely important to you. Because if it's not, you won't have the patience to keep going. You're going to want that instant gratification, and it's not going to come. So if you align yourself with something that you deeply want and you're willing to work for almost no matter how long it takes, that's where you can have the patience and the perseverance to see it through. In that chapter, actually, you say that you should have just one thing. That was something I circled, I know. In, but really? Yes, I know. Everyone in here is really ambitious. Y'all are overachievers. I know you hated me if you've read the book being like, I can only figure out one thing at a time. Yes. So here's what I mean by that. I give that directive in the book because most of us feel overstretched and overcommitted in our lives. Is that true? We got too many damn things going on already. So I'm not going to give you all permission to try and figure out five big things in your life at once. That's setting you up for failure. When we focus on just one thing, we give ourselves the opportunity to practice all of the underpinnings of the figureoutable philosophy. It's almost like training wheels on a bicycle. You want to get good at it so that you gain confidence 
you gain momentum. And once you see how powerful you really are and you start gaining real traction in whatever that dream is for you, then if we want, we can add on some more complexity. But I've found in my work that most people's lives are way too complex as it is. And I want you to win with this book, not feel like you're drowning even more. Does that make sense? And then another thing, especially how many people in here identify as multi-passionate creatives? Yes. So y'all know you're crazy as it is. I can't add to your craziness. Did you, did you coin the word multi-passionate? Because it has a little red line that the dictionary doesn't recognize. And yes, it is me. Because again, I struggled so much trying to fit myself into a conventional notion of success. When I was starting out, I read all the books about, you know, what color is your parachute and how to succeed at X, Y, and Z and all that stuff. And all of the wisdom was around really choosing one thing to be and defining yourself very clearly and specifically. And you guys, I used to cry so often because when people would ask me, what do you do for a living? I didn't have an answer because I was always five or six different things and I felt so flaky. And then the gift from the career gods was that two word phrase, multi-passionate entrepreneur, it just showed up in my mental theater one day and I'm like, damn, that's good, I like it. And the next time someone asked me at a cocktail party, what do you do? I said, I am a multi-passionate entrepreneur. They didn't know what the hell it was, and I didn't either, but it sounded good. It made me feel good because I had a new context through which I could describe the fullness of who I was. I could talk about my new coaching practice. I could talk about the fact that I was making money bartending and waiting tables because that was the truth. That was how I was keeping a roof over my head. I could talk about my new career at that time in dance and fitness, which I was really excited about. So I don't know how the hell we got on this topic, but I'm excited about it. We're going to come back to what was the original question? I can't even remember See? where we've Okay, gone. we're just having fun. So, um, oh, I know. I exactly know. So... When you're multi-passionate like we are, another mantra that we talk about in the book, and maybe it should actually be a whole other book, is this, and this ties to the one goal. Simplify to amplify. Simplify to amplify. If your life is feeling overwhelming right now, if you feel like you have too much on your plate, you will thank me for encouraging you to choose just one thing to focus on to figure out. And I've found in my career, in my personal life, when I simplify down, I can amplify my impact. When I simplify down, I can amplify my satisfaction. When I simplify down, I amplify my momentum and the speed through which I can create. If you think about it in gardening terms, anyone gardeners in here? So you prune. When you're looking at a beautiful new tree or a new bush, oftentimes what do we do? We clip off the branches so that we can focus the energy so that that plant or that tree or that bush can grow stronger and bigger and fuller as a result. So for anyone hating on me because I'm encouraging you to choose one thing, just remember simplify to amplify. It's, the time has gone by so quickly. I've only got a little bit of time left before I read out some of your questions. But I just want to ask about criticism because I think that of all the things yes. I was reading that I felt that I related to that held me back is a worry of people being critical of what you want to do. Of course. And you have some really great philosophies, of course, on how to deal with that and how to use criticism, see it as a positive to spur you on rather than something to hold you back. Yes, yeah, so let's be real about some things right now. Here's something that I've discovered in my career. No one that I respect and admire has ever given me harsh criticism. No one. 
No one whose body of work that I think is just extraordinary, no one who holds themselves in such a way that I appreciate and admire them, not one person has ever given me harsh criticism in public. Now that doesn't mean that my friends don't give me feedback. That doesn't mean that my friends don't offer me ideas or truths that they think that I should hear or that would help me, but they do it in a way that supports who I am, doesn't squash it. Does that make sense? So anytime a piece of criticism comes in, you need to ask yourself, who is the messenger? And if you don't respect that person, if they don't have a body of work that you admire, if you don't hold up who they are as a human being, as someone that you would aspire to be, don't listen to that shit. <laughs> Do not take that in. Seriously. So that's one frame on criticism. The other frame is this, and this is something that's a little personal to me uh, because, again, I told you freedom is one of my highest values. The more you care about what people think, the more they own you. And I do not want to be an owned woman. So, thank you. Now, coming back to some other practical applications, right? Um, in terms of people offering you feedback, first of all, I think one of the things that we should all do as humans is ask someone if they would actually care to hear your opinion before they share it. That's number one. Then you can either say yes or no and sometimes be like, no, I don't give a shit about your fucking opinion, so keep it to yourself. Um, and don't look at social media. <laughs> okay, but that comes back to point number one, right? Um, in terms of social media, I mean, people, people can leave really crappy, poopy comments and you can just delete them. You can block them. You can ignore them. For me, in my own business, if someone leaves some hateful comment, I'm not gonna engage with them. I'm not gonna give them my precious life energy. I'm not gonna let them, let them rent space in my head or my heart. Their toxic bullshit is not allowed in here. This is sacred. Do you know what I mean? And you have that control in your own space. I don't read Amazon reviews. Oh, speaking of which, can I make a request? <laughs> if you all love the book, please do me a favor and read the, uh, leave an Amazon review. And if you don't love the book, don't leave a review. <laughs> Is that fair? So combating criticism, I'm, I'm watching this clock. Are we good or we have to shift? We're great, it? no, we're great. Okay, good. Um, one of the things that you can do and one of the tips we talk about in the book is create what's known as a hype file. It's a little file that you keep with nice things that people have said to you or about you. So if you have your own business or you work in any business, if a client or a customer or a teammate has said something lovely, for you, lovely to you, keep it in your hype file. If you've won any awards or there's just something that you've done that you're proud of, keep it in your hype file. In our company, we have um, a little practice weekly that we have, it's called Letters from the Community, where our customer happiness team will surface notes that we get or nice comments from social media that someone comments about how some part of our work has helped them in their life. And that keeps us fueled and focused on the people that actually matter. And to me, those are people who are open and receptive and wanna have a great conversation 
conversation. And I will say this, in terms of comments and all that stuff, if someone disagrees with me, that's totally fine. We're all supposed to have different opinions in life, but I think it's the way through which people comment and invite a discussion, that is everything. So I've engaged with people who've been critical with me, but they're, they're more questioning. They have deeper questions about a particular idea or a philosophy, and I'm happy to have those conversations. But the people who are just critical for no good reason, delete. You've, you've talked about um, imposter syndrome. I don't think you used the word imposter syndrome, but that's oh, no, we did. being a fraud that you had read. read. There, are there are men here in the audience, and I'm delighted to see them. But do you think that when you were writing that you are thinking more of women, that this applies more to women, a feeling of, of feeling a fraud and an imposter? Yeah. So We have a harder hill to climb. Yes. According to research, up to 70% of us suffer from imposter syndrome or feeling like we're a fraud or a fake or we don't belong where we actually are in our careers. Can anyone identify with that? Raise your hands. Yes. About 70% of us. So I think that it impacts women and those from minority communities more because generally speaking, we haven't been represented in places of power. So when we get to those places of power, we do feel out of place. So I think it does impact us a little bit more, but everyone is impacted by it. Um, and I think it's important really to have dear friends that you can call upon when you feel those waves of imposter syndrome coming on, because everyone feels that from time to time. And I have people that I can call and just say, you know what, I'm feeling really, really shitty right now. Like, I don't deserve any of this. And they can remind me of what a badass I really am. And you also say about um, getting rid of imposter syndrome or dealing with it, I felt was very helpful that you should shine the light out and not in. Oh. That we should be self-consumed and that really can help you find a way out. Yeah, this is one of my favorite tips for anything, right? So in any given moment, you either have your attention shining out on others, so you're connected, you're being of service, you're listening, you're engaging, or your attention is shining in on you. How am I doing? What are they thinking of me? Do I look okay? Do I look old? Do I have gray hairs? Am I too fat? How does the skirt look? God, everyone hates me. They think I suck, right? That's essentially where the conversation always goes. When you have your attention on yourself, it's never good news. It's never good news. It might be good news for a moment if you think you look cute, but then you will find a flaw and then it all goes downhill from there. So a wonderful little trick is anytime you catch yourself feeling like you are a fraud or you're doubting your own abilities is to shift that attention outward. Who can you shine some love on? Who can you reach out to and tell them about the great job that they just did on whatever that project was? Who is a friend that you can let know that you really appreciate them and who they are in the world. Again, any act of service where you take your attention off yourself, in that moment, there is no room for imposter syndrome. There is no room to feel the self-doubt because you are being of service. And that's a practice. If you do that enough, the whole imposter syndrome thing starts to fall away. We were talking backstage and I was saying that I read the whole book and yes, my dream, my dream. And then at the end I read that you said that the dream shouldn't be necessarily about yourself and I suddenly felt incredibly selfish because that was the dream that I had in mind. Um, is that true or should we? So here's the deal. You can have your dream be about whatever you want and absolutely your dream should be about yourself, right? That's an important piece of it but I don't think it should end there. Here's what I've just discovered in, in doing the work that I do. When we have something that we're going for that's only about us, we eventually run out of steam. 
we eventually run out of steam. When we tie our dream to some aspect of supporting others, I think it motivates us on a deeper level. I think that our projects become more fulfilling. I think that when we have those dark nights of the soul and we do find ourselves in a tsunami of self-doubt or wondering whether or not we should continue, we are so much less likely to give up and quit if we connect what we are doing to the betterment of others. Does that make sense? So by all means, Get those dreams you want for yourself. That's awesome. We're not wanting to shy away from that. We just want to expand it to also include somehow the betterment of other people around you. And that doesn't have to be necessarily saving the polar bears. It could be around, no, but seriously, it could be around supporting your kids or your family. There could be someone in your community that you really want to make a difference for. So it doesn't have to be grand or epic in scale, but it just has to be rooted in connection and contribution and somehow service to others. And on that note, I think I should probably stop asking my own questions. <laughs> share the questions that you guys have, have given us. I'm so sorry that we cannot get, there were so many, and um, I'm sorry that we can't get through them all. You can probably email or find another way to have the questions answered. Oh yeah, Marie but, TV, we take questions all the time. Exactly, so we've just chosen a few. Um, Viv asked you, do you have a morning routine for when you wake up? I'm very interested in this one as well. And what does that entail? Okay, so the honest truth here about Marie Forleo's morning routine it's not a routine because it's never consistent. I'm one of those people, I move around a lot. So um, there are certain seasons of my life. So for example, let's talk about when I was actually writing the book and trying to get the book done, which was a really challenging thing in terms of balancing writing the book and continuing to run the business and doing everything else that we do. My morning routine at that time looked like this. I would wake up at about 4.30 or five o'clock. I would journal for a little bit. I would make some coffee. I would meditate probably for about 15 or 20 minutes, and then I would write for as long as my mind would allow me to write before I kind of ran out of steam and needed to take a break. On tour, do you guys want to know what my morning routine looks like? Waking up at ungodly hours, checking my phone instantly to make sure shit didn't burn down while I was asleep because I'm in a different time zone, and then taking a shower, downing some form of like a green juice and getting my ass out the door. It's the truth. It's not some perfect thing. It's because I'm in this season of my life. Does that make sense? So I hate when people feel like, oh my goodness, I didn't do the perfect morning routine and everything's gonna fall apart. That's bullshit. It's not gonna happen. You wanna make it appropriate for the season of life that you're in. And I think that people should make their morning routines um, flexible. And here's what I mean by that. You know, if meditation, which really saves my butt nine times out of 10, I can't always fit it in in the morning or I don't make time to because sleep is a higher priority. Sometimes I do my meditations a little bit later. So the morning routine doesn't quite look like the morning routine every day. Sometimes it's like a little bit in the morning and a little bit in the afternoon and a little bit in the evening. Make sense? The things that are most consistent in my life though are meditation, exercise, and journaling. Those are the three things that help me weave in and out uh, of just really staying rooted in who I am. Writing things down. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that you say through the book is incredibly important. Um, Leslie Yee says, in the last three or five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? In the last three to five years, the behavior that has most improved my life is an entire toolkit as it relates to relationships. 
I've said this pretty much at every single tour stop that we've ever done on this book tour. Does anyone ever have relationship challenges in this room? Anyone? Okay, awesome. So I have too. Josh and I have been together for 16 years and I will tell you the most transformative work that I have ever found in this realm is through a book called Getting the Love You Want and it's by Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt. They're in their 80s right now and they're still teaching a few times a year and I would highly recommend if you can get to one of their workshops, do whatever you can to study with them because they teach you this practice that's called Imago Dialogue and it is the most transformative thing for every relationship. Yes, for intimate relationships, but you can also use it with your team. You can also use it with your kids. You can also use it with your friends. So in terms of what has been the kind of biggest shift or change in the last three to five years, it is learning that toolkit and actually using it consistently. Okay, Melanie, um, who says, I will be bringing my teenage children with me, so this question is for them. And they're called Ben and Bonnie, so hi, and a shout up. Um, if you could go back and talk to your former 15-year-old self, what would you say to her? I would say, have even more fun than you think you can handle because it all goes by so damn fast. <laughs> See, she's very good at this time thing. <laughs> um, okay, Jenny says, and it's a, it's a long question, but I'm, I'm just gonna, the gist of it is, um, how do you avoid feeling overwhelmed? When we have, she talks about her list of things to do and she's always prioritizing the things that she perhaps shouldn't and then she thinks she's taken them all off and feels very overwhelmed. Yeah, so there's a couple things I would suggest for this. So we have actually a great Marie TV that's all about the stress log because overwhelm and stress go neatly together. So I would recommend wherever you are, when you get home, Google search Marie Forleo stress log, watch that episode and do the exercise where you actually write down your stresses and then you can remove them. We also have an overwhelm workshop, Marie TV, overwhelm workshop, put it in the Google, you will get that and we'll walk you through a whole series of steps on how to eliminate overwhelm. And the final thing I'll say on this is when you're overwhelmed, just pick one thing to do, just one. The most important thing from your whole big list, just look at it, choose the one thing that your heart tells you is the most important and go for it because you can only do one thing at a time. Um, what's your go-to technique to prepare yourself for an uncomfortable conversation or for example, a cold market call? Um, uncomfortable conversations. What I usually like to do is bullet point out exactly what I hope to say, what I hope the intention is, and I practice saying those things out loud because I feel like, especially during uncomfortable or difficult conversations, part of it is actually getting the words out, right? Not bumbling it and saying it very clearly and connected to your heart. So I like to bullet things out, I like to say them out loud, and then I do the call. And the last one, we've, we've touched on this a, a fair bit, but how do I get over the fear of ridicule from people who are knowledgeable, intelligent, very influential, and who can at times be nasty? Oh, interesting. Well, what are those adjectives again? <laughs> knowledgeable, intelligent, very influential, but can at times be nasty. I would actually question why you should give a shit what nasty people think of you. Seriously, I'm just not interested. Do you know what I mean? I would go for the intelligent, knowledgeable, kind people and kind of get to know those folks. Don't give a shit about the other ones. Life is too short. Y'all, do you guys realize this? Okay. Morbidity check. 
Do you know likely we're all gonna be dead in 100 years or less? It's true, we're all gonna be powder. Like this is awesome that we're all together right now, but in 100 years or less, we're done. So I do not think we should give any time or space for intelligent assholes. Who cares how smart they are? If they're dicks, don't talk to them, yes? You guys, I'm so afraid, like, how to Academy is like, we're never having her back again. Like, that was No horrible. way, you're what coming back, think? and we're hoping we're gonna send you to number 10 after this to help <laughs> them figure out what they've got going on. <laughs> just, just before we finish, I think you've got something you'd like to do. Oh, yes, you guys, do you wanna do something awesome together that will actually help reshape your brain? Yes, okay, so there's two things we're gonna do. So what is so amazing right now is so many of you already have the book and many of you got it tonight. There was an extra chapter that did not make it into the book. This is the advanced stuff beyond what you have in your book already. It is this incredible formula that I created that's all based in neuroscience and behavioral science and I guarantee when you learn this little formula, if you ever find yourself feeling stuck or just frozen like a deer in headlights or you're not sure which way to move or what step to take next, you will be able to move through that in 90 seconds or less and get yourself moving. I turned this extra chapter, chapter into an online course and I'm giving it to everyone who has a book for free starting next week. So if you go to eifcourse.com, eifcourse.com, you will get access to the course. We'll do live coaching every single day, and you will have a tool that you will be able to use for the rest of your life. It will help you embed the belief everything is figureoutable into your brain, into your soul, and into your consciousness. So that's one. Two, here's what we're going to do together if you're willing. Um, Tom from Team Forleo, okay, you're back there. Um, we're all gonna stand up and we're gonna have a little fun together. Are you guys up for that? Yes? Okay, stand up. Shake your body out. So, people sometimes ask me, they're like, oh my God, you have this belief in you. It's like in your DNA, but what about the rest of us? Well, here's the deal. A really simple thing to do to reshape your brain so that you too believe that everything is figureoutable is to do something very simple. It's just to say it out loud. <laughs> Science shows that when we speak things out loud, it actually helps us reshape our brain in a more powerful way than if we just thought it in our head. So you actually create new neural pathways through repetition. I mean, think about it if you've ever learned another language, right? You can't just think it, you have to actually speak it and say it again and again and again. So what we're going to do together is we're going to use our bodies and we're actually going to say everything is figureoutable. But I don't want you to just say it like, oh, everything is figureoutable. <laughs> Fuck that shit. <laughs> yes? I want you to say it with your full body like you mean it. Because this literally can change your life. And we're not just going to do it once because that's not enough fun. How about we do it three times in a row? Are you guys game? Yes, and yes, oh, I see Matthew's holding up his book. If you got a book and you want to hold it up because that's going to help you feel it more, totally do that. Totally do that. Now, I'm going to turn around so I'm with you guys. And uh, Hannah, you want to turn around and do it with us? Or you want to take the, oh, you can do that. Do whatever you want, girl. Do whatever you want, as long as you're saying it. Okay. 
I'm trying to think if we should do everything is figure outable like separately three times, or if you want to do everything is figure outable, everything that, yes. So we're going to go as a little practice before we do it for real. We're going to go one, two, three. Everything is figure outable. Everything is figure outable. Everything is figure outable. And then after that third time, Let's go fucking nuts. Let's be like, woo! You know what I mean? Like, just let yourself lose it and feel it. And whatever your body does, if you want to clap or you want to cheer, you want to close your eyes, like whatever feels genuinely good to you, just let yourself express it. Just express joy and excitement and possibility for the future. Yes, exactly. This is Team Forleo. They're like the best in the world. Are you guys down for it? It's fun. And again, you'll start to reshape your brain with that belief. So we're going to say it three times, and then we're going to go fucking bonkers together. Because again, we're going to be dead in 100 years. Who cares? Let's have fun while we're still alive, right? OK. Do I, oh, you, you know what? Can I hold up your book? And yeah. yes. OK, awesome. My notes. All right, you guys. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. Everything is figure outable. Everything is figure outable. Everything is figure outable. Yes, it is. You guys, you did that awesome. All right, let's have a seat for just a minute. Let me thank you all. Um, by the way, do you have to do anything officially? No. No? Okay, cool. <laughs> all right, cool. So, first of all, was that fun or what? It just felt good, right, to just say it out loud. So thank you for playing. Um, I also just really want to do this. I want to thank you again from the bottom of my heart for coming out. This book has been such a labor of love. And to have the opportunity to just share about it and to be with you guys in person and to feel your energy, it just really means the world. So I hope with everything in my soul that there's some nugget of information in here that changes something for you, that helps you remember how powerful and how creative and how strong you really are. So much of this book it's not about me having the answers. I know I don't have all the answers, but I believe so deeply that you do. You have so much innate wisdom inside. You have so many strengths and so many gifts. And I honestly believe that I was put on this planet simply to help activate and amplify the gifts that you already have. So thank you for gracing me with your presence tonight. Thank you for loving me and accepting me as my crazy self. I really appreciate that. And I will say, if you leave with nothing else, please remember to say this little phrase as often as possible. Say it in the morning, say it in the afternoon, say it at the night. Because honestly, the most powerful words in the universe are the words that you say to yourself. Thank you, Hannah, for being with me. You're amazing. Thank you guys so much for coming out. I love you. This episode of the How To Academy podcast starred Marie Forleo, whose new book, Everything Is Figureoutable, is out now. 
She was interviewed by Hannah McInnes. The podcast was produced by me, Thas Christodoulou, and our editor is John Doughty. You'll find more shows with the most inspirational and brilliant thinkers in global culture on our website, howtoacademy.com. And of course, you'll also find there a rolling program of live masterclasses, talks, debates, festivals, and conferences. Thanks for listening.